I am sure this week you see the parallel between our first and second readings. Now, the book of James, written by the half-brother of Jesus, was clearly intended to bring his teachings from this sermon to the people he was writing to, or at least remind them of these truths. He, he saw the merits of this timeless sermon and wanted it passed on. You know, it's, and it's, in, in light of that, it's no surprise that 2,000 years later, we are still gleaming from this fantastic sermon that Jesus preached at the Sermon on the Mount. And 2,000 years later, it is still relevant. It is still countercultural and still profound for us to read and to meditate on this morning. You know, it's amazing. You can hear sermons from even just a decade ago, and they don't have the same power that they used to or had at the time because some of them are so uh, mixed in with the, the, uh, something related to the culture of the moment, related to that time. But Jesus' words are complete, completely timeless to be meditated on for all generations. So as we approach this text, we, we, we become familiar with the formula that Jesus is teaching with. Where he would say, you have heard it said, but I say unto you. You know, Jesus challenging the established teachings of the rabbis who had gone before him and the Pharisees of the day. Bringing clarity to what the Bible actually taught on all of these subjects, and not just the tradition of how people had, had come to understood these subjects. And you know, we could all use a challenge to our presumptions every once in a while. You know, I remember when I went for my first seminary interview, as I'm talking with the provost, he asked if I had any questions, and I asked him, you know, well, so what do you guys teach about the Bible? What is your, what is your opinion on it? What do you believe the Bible is? And he, he had a profound answer that really touched me. He said that the Bible is always right. Our understanding of it isn't always. And I think that that's wise. We should occasionally challenge our presumptions. And G, the way Jesus teaches really brings that out of us, makes us think about what we believe. And that's exactly what this sermon is about, especially this part of this sermon where, let's face it, the Pharisees believed that the Bible was the Word of God. They believed that the Bible was true. Most of their presumptions about it were wrong, though. And they needed clarity. And so the next area that Jesus is bringing clarity to as we continue to go through this amazing sermon is oaths. Where, again, you have heard it said to the... Uh, to those of old, do not swear falsely, but you shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or the earth, for it is his footstool, or Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. The, the rabbis had correctly taught that we weren't to swear by the name of the Lord. That is correct. But uh, you aren't to swear by God. But they, they did teach, you know, go ahead and swear by virtually anything else, though. In any other name or any other object you could swear by. They had created this 
system of various levels of swearing and what you could swear by. You, uh, for instance, they could say, oh, I swear by the temple that such and such is true. Uh, Jesus even says as much in Matthew 23. He talks about this. And people would hear, oh, I swear by the temple and think, oh, that's a good oath. But then somebody would come around and say, oh, I swear by the gold on the temple. And oh, okay, by the gold of the temple. Okay, he must really be serious about what he's saying. And Jesus clearly mocked their hypocrisy later on in that chapter, saying to them, you blind fools. Which is greater, the gold on the temple? Uh, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? <laughs> and funny enough, that's what Jesus is getting at when he mentions by taking an oath by heaven or by earth or by Jerusalem or even your own head as he would go on later on. But before we, we criticize them too much, we do this in our own culture. All the time. Oh, I swear to God such and such happened. Oh, I swear by my mother's grave this happened. And, you know, when, and when we hear stuff, stuff like that, oh, that's when we're supposed to take you seriously. But honestly, if your reputation has become so tarnished that you have to swear by your mother's grave for me to believe you, I can't believe you. For, for you to swear in such grandiose ways is to invite me to stop listening to you, to be honest. So I don't care what you swear by by that point. So what does Jesus mean as he's addressing all of this nonsense? He's saying don't swear at all. Don't bother with all these grandiose statements. <laughs> this is where what our first reading from James 5 said. You know, let your yes mean yes and your no mean no. Live in such a way that you don't need these huge over-the-top gestures for people to believe you. To get people to listen. Jesus is calling us to live with such integrity that it would render these oaths redundant and meaningless. That you don't need them. That you're the same person under an oath as you are without an oath. That when, if you go into a courtroom and the judge reminds you, I want to remind you, you are under oath. It means nothing to you. It's not a scary gesture. It's okay. I'll keep talking the way that I was before. Speaking of the courtroom, by the way, let's challenge our assumptions for a second. Are Jesus and James telling us that it's a sin to go under oath? No, that's not what he's going at here. That's not the main thrust of what he's saying. Because that would be a problem because Jesus was under oath when he was before uh, the, the high priest and before Pilate in Matthew uh, 26. Paul called God as his witness in, Rome, in Romans chapter 1 verse 9. The point is not to legalistically avoid oaths at all costs. It's to treat your whole life like you're under oath. So that when you are under oath, like Jesus or Paul were, nothing happens, nothing changes. That you're living with this level of integrity that you don't need it. 
So can a Christian take an oath of office like the President of the United States does? Yes. Is it, can a Boy Scout take the Scout Oath? Yes, they can. Why not? But moreover, the reason why we should be careful with oaths is because we don't even have the, sw- have the power to swear by the hairs of our own head. We can't make one turn white or black. Maybe we can make them turn white. If anyone wants to babysit my kids, I can make them turn white. <laughs> but rather, James gives us the proper approach. And um, in James chapter 3, I intended to read this earlier. But I suppose now is as good as time as any. We're in James chapter 4. He said, come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are but a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So... Therefore, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, to him it is sin. You see the thrust that he's saying there. It's like, if the Lord wills, we will do such and such. We will do this or that. We'd all be better off to have a, a level of humility when we're making plans. Because, but, but it has to be true humility, though. If we're honest, there's a lot of false humility in a lot of Christian circles these days. You know, modern Pharisees like to talk the talk, but they are really just inflating their own egos in the process by saying the right things. You know, I tried to compliment somebody I know a couple of years ago for some great work that he was doing at the time, and he always corrected me. Oh, John, no, don't thank me. Thank the Lord. He did all of this wonderful stuff. You know, you shouldn't speak to me like that. And I just wanted to smack the guy. (laughs) Just take the compliment. Don't give me your thinly veiled self-righteousness. Yes, we should thank the Lord. That is the right thing to say. But you can just tell when it's not coming from the right heart sometimes. Sometimes you can't tell, and that's when it gets dangerous. I suppose that's another sermon, though. The point is, don't swear by the highest of heavens that you're going to be somewhere. For there's so much that we just can't control in this lifetime. A child could get sick, and you you can't come to uh, the meeting you promised to be to. You could hit traffic, and you won't be there in time. You could be hit by traffic and you won't get there at all. Anything can happen in this lifetime. We ought to have wisdom in these matters and, and walk in humility. And when we're at least saying this to ourselves, not being grandiose towards everybody else, when we're being honest within our own hearts, saying these things, if the Lord wills, yes, I will be there. It's my desire to be there. That's how I often like to word it myself. But moving forward, let's quickly survey this next section, which will serve as kind of a springboard to our sermon next week, where it said, You have heard it said, 
An eye for an eye and a tooth for, the, for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. Stop there for a second, actually. That eye for an eye line, that needs a lot of clarity. Even 2,000 years after Jesus said it, that very line requires uh, clarity. You know, when you hear that verse, our gut reaction is to think vengeance, eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. And it, it brought me great embarrassment a number of years ago when a, a prominent politician actually said this was his favorite verse in the Bible. <laughs> an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, because I'm a fighter and I'm going to fight for you guys. It's not what this verse is talking about when you read it in context, though. You know, this verse is, when you, when you go back to where it's come from, this, this verse is limiting violence. Not encouraging it. Well, what do you mean by that? Well, think about it. If you push me, what is my gut reaction to want to do next? I want to push you back. Push you back harder even. If you punch me in the arm, what do I want to do in my flesh? I want to get you back in the arm. I want to get you back in the face. Again, speaking purely from the flesh here for a second. Nobody's in danger this morning. (laughs) But violence naturally escalates. We always want to do more to the person who harms us. This verse, eye for an eye, is intended to stop the escalation. Where if if there's a physical altercation and I get injured in my eye, I can't mess up both of your eyes. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. It's to prevent it from getting out of hand. It was a legal system for the nation of Israel, not a mandate for, every, for all people in all nations at all times. But it was a le- part of the legal system for Israel to deal with crimes and to keep things from getting out of hand. Because we've all known people who have fought for years where the problems just keep escalating. You harm me, I harm you, I do this happened to my property, I'll do this to yours, and it just keeps getting worse. This is to prevent that. But keep in mind, the most that a law can do is deliver justice. The most a law can do is deliver justice. And justice, as you remember, is giving someone what they deserve. And as Christians, we like justice. I mean, you read the book of Micah and the book of Isaiah. There's so much the Bible emphasizes on the importance for justice. But is that the most important thing for us Christians to pursue? No. Aren't you all glad Jesus didn't give you justice for your sins? Giving us justice for our sins would have undone all of us. We couldn't handle the justice of God on our sins. Now look, a society needs justice to survive and to thrive. If there's not a sense that you're safe to conduct business and be together, you cannot have a thriving society. But as Christians, as individuals, you and I, church, we're called to pursue love 
and mercy. That's our highest calling, not justice, although that's also good. Hope you guys are seeing the balance I'm trying to strike here. And let's keep in mind the only place where justice, mercy, and love meet together in perfect harmony is the cross of Jesus Christ. In all of history where you have, where out of Jesus' love for us, he took the punishment that that allowed us to be able to be shown mercy while at the same time delivering justice for our sins. That is our model for how we are to conduct ourselves today, church, to be like Jesus in our experiences. And with that model in mind, what does this look like in practice? Well, that's where this paragraph continues, verse 39. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also, now rather than focusing on an eye for an eye, do not resist an evil person, he says. Now, is Jesus advocating that we should passively allow evil to run wild in, our, in this world and not stop it? No. There's verses all over scripture that say, that encourage the church to be the restrainer of evil. And again, there are plenty of verses that tell us to seek justice. And to do what is right. And even in, talks about uh, the role of the government in their role to restrain evil when they're operating correctly. But rather, what, he, what, what we will see, what Jesus is calling us to do here, is to lay down our own personal comforts. For the sake of showing others the love and mercy of God, rather than insisting upon our own justice. Showing showing other people that there is something more important than our own resources and our own time. Let's consider what that means. Let's look at these each really quickly. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Now, slapping someone on the cheek in ancient Israel was an insult. It wasn't considered a physical threat. This isn't from, Jesus isn't describing somebody who's out to do you physical harm. It's really more of an, a person-to-person insult. So let's keep that in mind as we address this. He's, we're not talking about violence right here. This goes into a different, that, that's a different category. But in the face of this kind of insult, Jesus said, is basically saying, Go ahead and insult me again. Not defending his own personal uh, reputation. Jesus himself modeled this. Himself being called a, a glutton, a drunk, an illegitimate child, a blasphemer. Jesus was called all of these things in his lifetime. And he let those insults largely go unchallenged. He was even silent before uh, Pontius Pilate, as Isaiah 53 said, he was like a sheep before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. So too, we shouldn't be bothered by the insults of people, There's, and we, but we show them that there are things more important than our reputation. Let's clarify this by moving forward. If anyone sues you and takes your tunic, 
let him have your cloak as well. Again, if you're trying to cheat me out of my tunic, here. Oh, and here's this one too. Giving abnormal grace to others. As Jesus told us in Luke chapter 12, life is more than food and clothing. Now, some of you might have seen the, um, I guess it's a musical, uh, Les Mis. And that beautiful scene towards the beginning of it, where this man robs a priest. And shortly afterwards, he is caught. And he's brought back by the police back to the priest. And he say, and he tells him, oh, look, we found this guy with all of your stuff. And he's saying that you let him have all of this. He, he's lying to us. Please, please certify that this is true so we can put him in jail or whatever it was. And he said, oh, no, what he said was true. Yes, I gave him all of those things. Oh, and he forgot the best part. And he gives him a priceless set of candlesticks. Incredible amount, worth an incredible amount of money. And gives him that too. And that kind of grace haunts him for the rest of, for the, rest of the theatrical experience. It haunts him, this kind of grace. It bothers him being shown all of this while living in a certain kind of lifestyle. Grace amazes and shocks people. That's what Jesus is calling us to do here. So how can I be so free to just give away my stuff like that? That's, that's absurd. That sounds insane. Well, we'll see in the next chapter when we talk about laying up our treasures in heaven, that there's a way to do this. And we'll see how we don't have to be anxious for anything, that if God can provide for the sparrows, how much more so is God going to provide for us? You know, the bottom line is it's not my stuff in the first place. Everything I have is God's. Everything is his. I just take care of his stuff in the meantime. I try to be a steward of his resources while I'm here on this earth. And if I go around viewing that this is all my stuff, it's harder to give away. But when I view everything that I have as God's, as something that belongs to somebody else... It's easier to give away. So we don't have that firm grip on it. That this is mine, I must hold on to it. Looking forward to getting into that in the next chapter. And that's really hard-hitting, practical stuff. But in the same way, to skip to the last verse, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. The same mentality. If, if it's not ours, we can give it away more easily. Now, I like this, this, this last line. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. You know, there's a context to this verse. Israel was not its own independent nation like it is today at that time. They were under the Roman occupation. Basically, everything they, had, they wanted to do, they weren't completely autonomous. They had to go through Rome. And because Rome was in charge, one of their soldiers could go up to one of the people on the streets, give them their stuff, and force them to go a mile with it. Only one mile, though. They could only legally force them to go one mile. So with that in mind, let's look at this. <laughs> Jesus' command has a context. They might be able to legally make you walk one mile, but out of love. You can go too with them. 
You know, it's funny, I've heard some incredible stories of people who had this in mind and incredible things have happened to them. I'm aware of someone who was arrested for preaching the gospel and they they put him in in the jail and they held him there for as long as they could legally hold him there. And then... Uh, as they were going to let him out, he, said, he, told, he tells the guard, hey, could you give me 15 more minutes? I'm not done telling this guy about Jesus yet. He was preaching the gospel to the inmates, and he said, I need 15 more minutes. You can go ahead and close the door. That's going the extra mile. You could legally hold me here for a little bit longer, but I'm going to stay a little bit longer. So as, as, as we consider that church, please hear me on this. Some things are more important in this life than my own personal justice. There is a world out there that has no hope, that has no peace, that is anxious about everything and is dying without Christ every single day. We ought to be ready to live and be inconvenienced if it means sharing the gospel, sharing the truths that give us peace and anxiety-free living in this world that is dying around us. That is more important than my own comforts. So we go the extra mile. We hold on to our stuff with a more loose grip. And we let people say what they're going to say about us. Because we have something of infinite worth that this world so desperately needs. Something imperishable. Something that cannot be stolen from me. And something that has given me a new identity in God. A new creation, if you will. It's called the gospel. Let's live in such a way that we're able to take this gift that we have and give it away to others. Thanks be to God. Amen.